Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Acts chapter 3, Acts 3, we are, I think I have one, maybe two more sermons to go in this chapter. It just depends on how I want to approach it. In Acts chapter 3, we have the wonderful story of a man who was by, in birth, at birth born lame, unable to walk. His legs were withered, crippled in some way. Peter and John were going up to the temple and per, to pray. They, they passed him. They saw a man that everyone would know because the means by which you got taken care of as a person with some kind of infirmity is that you would beg. And the lame people were the ones who couldn't go door to door, and so they would go to the temple, and they would sit there, and they would beg. And your job was to give them a certain amount of money so that they might be able to at least feed themselves. Unfortunately for them, because they were lame, they were not able to partake in parts of the temple worship and the worship of the one true God, and so they were somewhat outcasts. Along with that was uh, the idea that had arisen in that day, and it's still today uh, present in various ways in the church, that this man or his parents had done something wrong. Somehow they had sinned, and therefore God's judgment was resting upon this person. And so while there would be pity shown to him, there was also that constant nagging question, well, what exactly caused this? Well, Peter says to the man, I don't have any money, but I do have this in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And as the song goes, he went leaping and jumping and praising the Lord. He was excited. Everything was healed. A man who didn't even know how to walk now knows how to jump and dance and shout praises. It's a neat thing. It's a good story. It's a wonderful story. But in this, a crowd begins to gather because it's the ninth hour, the time of prayer, a time in which the people of Jerusalem would go regularly to the temple for the purpose of saying certain prayers. And that's why they had originally gone. So this large crowd sees this. They see the commotion. They see a man that they have known their whole life who was always lame. Now he is well. He's praising God. They gather, and Peter, seeing the crowd, begins to speak to them. And so last sermon, we talked about the boldness of Peter in his message, how he was blunt with these people. He did not shy away from the facts, even though they were very inconvenient facts for the people to hear. We saw him acknowledge uh, his knowledge of the word and how his uh, ability to know the story and the, de- the details of the Old Testament came into a being through his words that you could see it's literally dripping with Old Testament imagery and words. 
that he is ready and eager to speak to the people about sin and wrath and even the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And his way of speaking about that hope to these people is very unique, and and we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. We saw how the whole situation was not really about Peter. It was not about the man even. It was not about the miracle of healing. It was all about really Jesus Christ. And what I asked you to consider as a people is yourself in light of what we saw with Peter. I encouraged you, exhorted you that you would become more bold with the gospel if you are given to fear. To know the Bible so well and the gospel so well that you are able to speak it with confidence so that if you're weak in these areas, that you just simply begin the task of growing in them so that when somebody looks at you and asks a question that you don't freak, but rather you simply calmly begin to discuss why you have this hope that's different from everyone else. That you would stop waiting for someone to come to you, but rather you would look at the mission field that God has placed you in and that you would act like a missionary not as a participant in the culture, but as one sent into that culture with a message. And therefore, simply put, to love somebody in the same way that somebody had loved you by bringing you the gospel. Unfortunately, the reality is this doesn't always work out in our minds, right? It just doesn't work out. Part of the reason is because we become too familiar with that incredible gift of salvation. We just treat it casually. It's kind of like a long time marriage as opposed to that first blush of love with a couple. Right? That moment where all you think about is that person and you'll do everything and anything to help them and show kindness to them and express your love for them. It's just wonderful. But then you're married and now you're into your third or fourth or fifth decade. And, and now what has happened is something that Aesop uh, makes in his point when he says in one of his fables, um, familiarity breeds contempt. That time where longtime marriage partners begin to forget that they love each other, where they begin to forget their duties that God has called them to do as husband and wife, and so they begin to wander and their hearts grow cold and casual, and they treat each other in a manner that's flippant and casual. I'm not talking about trying to strike that original match where you're now burning in that first blush of marriage. It's just that mindset where we become so comfortable in our routines that we sort of take each other for granted. Well, I can tell you that this becomes true for the Christian, and many of you would attest for that or attest to that. Not only for the Christian, but it becomes comfortable with regard to the gospel. We sing about it, we hear it, we talk about it to one another until it becomes actually a byline, something we just mention, rather than the foundation of all that we do and and are. We forget that it really is the power of God unto salvation, and I mean that. I believe that probably the most common thing we forget It's the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation. 
And beneath all of this is that Jesus then becomes this passing concept in our minds rather than our Lord. We're not even sure how that happened, but that happened. The risen king who is going to love the or judge the living and the dead now is merely a name that we paste at the end of a prayer. And so today, what I want us to do is to look at this sermon of Peter and with it, very, uh, and see with it a very specific focus that Peter has, that the many ways that he refers to Jesus, hence the title, Jesus and his titles. Recall that this is all about Jesus. Notice in verse 16 with me. On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Twice he mentions his name, the name of Christ. And he's saying, look, it's in the name of Christ that this man was made well. It has nothing to do with Peter or the man or anything else. It's all about this name. And actually, this entire section that we have just entered into, it began here in chapter 3 and goes all the way to chapter 8 of Acts, is about the name of Jesus. Just look down with me, and maybe you'll want to underline these uh, these repeated events. In verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And so he heals the man in the name of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 16, twice the word, the name is invoked. Go over to the next chapter in chapter 4, verse 7. And he says, by what power or in what name have you done this? And the question is, how are you able to perform this? But notice how he says it, that they, that, or they say it. By what power or by what name? They're really the same thing, the power and the name of Christ. Then in verse, uh, verse, that's verse 7. Then in verse 10, he says, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. In verse 12, there is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. Verse 17 they're now warned by the religious leaders to speak no, no more in this name. Whose name? Jesus' name. In verse 18, they told them, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 30, why dost thou extend thy hand to heal and signs of wonders take place through the name of the holy servant, Jesus? Chapter 5, verse 28 we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name. Verse 40. After calling the apostles, they flogged them or beat them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing, just like we did in the Lord's Supper, learned, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for what? His name. Over and over again in this whole section, it's all about the name of Jesus. And what, what it, does that mean? Well, recall what is said in chapter 4, verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? 
When we talk about the name of Jesus and invoking the name of Jesus, it's not some magic property. It's just simply that we are doing this in his authority or in his power. We are coming to you in the name of Jesus, meaning what we are doing here is we are representing Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. I'm not healing this man. It's Jesus' healing. I'm not teaching you. It's Jesus who is teaching you through me. I am here representing in the name of Jesus these truths. So Peter is simply operating under Jesus' authority. But it's also used here to make clear who the promised one from God is. In other words, we can't be vague. And that's what I want to push today. We can't be vague about who we're talking about in this very pluralistic society that we live in. One of the interesting things that I'm learning more and more about is the current rise of paganism and and the New Age world that we live in now. I I was very much aware of that stuff back several decades, but I kind of stopped keeping myself up on the movement. And it's fascinating and a little frightening in, in ways when you begin to see how much that has grown within our society. But within the whole New Age movement, you're going to talk about Jesus. You're going to hear people talk about the Christ, the Ascended Master, and the Christ Spirit. And, and all of a sudden, this meaning of Jesus or Christ becomes very broad, very open, very vague. And what I want us to do is and to understand is that when we are talking about Jesus Christ, that we know what we're talking about and that we're very specific about it, that we, that we do battle against these people who want to drag the name of Jesus, his, his being, his person, his works down into the world of many gods and instead exalt him to where he is and declared to be in the scripture. And that is Lord over all. So we cannot be vague about Christ, and the only way we cannot be vague about Christ is we have to know who he is. So today, this sermon is going to be uh, theological, and what we're going to look at is the various ways that Peter, Peter invokes this name of Jesus. He uses many titles in this section, and as I began to sketch out the passage and I began to break it down into its, its flow and argument, one of the things that began to stand out is that it's all about the name of Jesus, but it's also all about who he is to these people. And he is drawing from all of these terms from the Old Testament that are all designed to basically heap judgment upon these people. He is not being nice. And it's, and I don't mean that just simply because he says, this one whom God sent you murdered. I mean, that's already being rough. But what he's actually doing is he keeps talking about Jesus, and as he does, he keeps using these titles, and each one of them is just like a big hammer blow to these people. I want you to see what he's attempting to do to them, and we'll, we'll try to bring it all together in the end. So today, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, and so I would encourage you to, first of all, mark uh, uh, somehow a piece of paper or your finger here in Acts so we can go back and forth. But the very first thing that I want you to notice is in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant. His servant. 
Look down at verse 26. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Here we see the very first title, and most of you, if you uh, don't know your Old Testament well, may not recognize it as a title, that this is a very important term that he is invoking, and every Israelite would recognize it in a minute. Go back with me to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, and we'll spend a lot of time in Isaiah today. In Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9, I want you to see how this, this idea of the servant is developed. In 42.1, you see him say, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. But look, what I want you to see is What I want you to see is that he is applying this. Actually, we're, we know that he is talking about Jesus Christ here, that he will not cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, or God Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and his offspring, who gives breath to all the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand, watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise and glory to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Now what he is doing here is he is talking here about the Messiah. And I actually just realized I wrote down the wrong passage. And of course, off the top of my head, I can't, oh, And I can't off the top of my, my head remember specifically the passage. What I mean to show you here, and this is the one I was leading toward, is that in the early part of the Old Testament, so you'll just have to believe me, in the early part of, the Old Te- of Isaiah, he begins to talk about Israel, the nation, as his servant. And what he's doing is he's invoking these names, the father, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the fathers of Israel. These are the ones who founded Israel. They're not Israel themselves, but they, the, their offspring, the 12 uh, uh, sons, became Israel. But the covenant given to them is something that establishes them in the line of Israel. And so by doing that, he is trying to talk about this one who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has raised up his servant. But what he wants to show here is that Israel started out as being called the servant of God, kind of like the term son. 
in the Old Testament, the, the idea of the Son of God was actually applied to Israel. So in Exodus 4, uh, God calls Israel his son. But then that begins to change, so that in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promised king from the line of David is now called his son. So it goes from Israel to now it's being narrowed down to the line of David. And then in Psalm 2, we find out that this son is explicitly being called God's son. And in a similar way, the idea of the servant of Israel morphs from being just the servant as a nation to that now I'm going to raise up a one among you who is a servant. And that's actually what Isaiah 42 is doing here in verses 1 and 2, actually 1 through 4. And it's talking about my servant who I'm upholding. Now, with that in mind, go to Isaiah 49, and hopefully I wrote the correct verse down. Isaiah 49 I want you to notice in verse 3, so 1 through 9, but for time's sake, I won't read the whole thing. I just want to draw out this idea of servant. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show show my glory. So here again, what I was trying to say in the other passage, what he is doing is he's calling the nation Israel his servant. But then notice what happens in verse 5. So in verse 3, he's saying, my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory, now says in verse 5, the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring who back? To bring Jacob back to him in order that who might be gathered to him? Israel. In, in the span of just one or two verses, he shifts from calling the servant Israel, he now becomes this servant who's raised up by God to bring Israel back. And so from being the nation Israel, he now is talking about this person who is his servant. And one of the main tasks of this servant is to bring the nation back to God. It's actually a very beautiful picture of a wayward nation which is what's happening in Isaiah, where he's prophesying that this is what's happening to you, that judgment is coming, but I will raise up this one from among you, from the midst of my servant Israel, I will raise up my servant, and my servant will bring my nation back to me. So this wandering nation, this sinning nation, is going to be led back to their God by this servant. It's a wonderful picture if you allow it to work in your mind. And isn't this what Grayson's been telling us every time he preaches? In some way or another, all he does is beat us up, right? All he does is tell us, this is Israel, and they're sinning in every possible way, and then he can show that in the same way, we as a people, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, do the same thing. And But at the same time, In every one of the prophets, they promise this day where God will bring back this nation. And that was exactly what he preached on last week. Was it last week? Yeah. Last week, he he talked about how God will restore the nation. Now, this is hard for us sometimes because we're not Israel, and so we either try to spiritualize that away and make it all about us, or we just don't really care about Israel. But we ought to care about Israel. The servant 
is going to bring Israel back. Now, understand that in light of what Peter is saying. He's invoking this term, the servant, the servant you killed, of course. So this all comes into play when you look at verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah 49. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? For what purpose? To raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation. So not only for Israel, but now it's extending out to the Gentiles. That's you and I. For what purpose? So that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, the one who purchases Israel out of slavery and its holy one to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation to be the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes shall go, uh, shall also bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you for you, give you for a covenant of the people. For what purpose? To restore the land and to make them inherit the desolate heritage. All of this is just describing the idea that this one who is a servant, and I would encourage you to keep your finger in that passage. You'll save us time as this sermon progresses that all of this is talking about the servant who is going to draw the nation back to Yahweh. Now go, well, keeping your finger there, just go over to Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. And again, notice the servant terminology. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. So again, he's extending this idea of the servant to the Gentiles as well, that kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what has not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. So again, this servant is being invoked And it's invoking both the idea that the servant will suffer. That's actually what's built into the high and lifted up. That he will be high and lifted up is not talking about exaltation, but in fact, it's talking about suffering. But also he will be exalted, as it says again. So we have this servant metaphor, or this servant imagery. And again, this is a passage that's used in the New Testament to speak of Jesus Christ. Then go just one page over or just a few uh, sentences down to Isaiah 53 and look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Here again, we have this wonderful picture of the coming Messiah. And that chapter 53 is just an incredible passage where it talks about how God is going to take our sin and place it upon his servant. Your sins, beloved, my sins and sins of Israel, they will be placed upon this one and he will die for them. It's a great prophecy of the death of Christ. And by now, the servant has completely become a specific person. 
the one who's going to take on the guilt and the sin of Israel. This is a word of hope to the nation. They're in the midst of God's judgment. They are under his crushing hand. And as you see with what Grayson has said, it doesn't get better. It got worse and worse and worse. Babies are being killed right before their mothers. Mothers are debating who cooks their baby first and eats so that they don't starve. I mean, it's twisted and broken and sick and all of it because of their sin. And yet in the midst of it, the promise is that there will be this one who is the servant who will come and lead them back to Yahweh. To come back to Yahweh is salvation. Now go back to Acts. So then in verse 26, he says, for you first... Israel, he means, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you. Why or how? To turn you back or turn every one of you from your wicked ways. This is what Isaiah is talking about. He's literally telling them, dude, what Isaiah told you and all of you know about, God did. He did not send Jesus to judge them. He sent him to be the servant, to lead them back. He sent him to save. He did not abandon them, but they abandoned him. All right, so that's the first one. He invokes his idea of the servant. In verse 14, we see another term that is very strong. In verse 14, he says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one. We're, we're going to break that into two. You disowned the holy one and the righteous one. Once again, he is invoking a term that is very much built into the Old Testament. And it would be part of the, you know, you know what I mean when I talk about Christianese, you know, where, well, well, how can we bless him? You know, it's like what a non-Christian who has never been go, go, gone to church would say, what does that mean? Bless him. I go, what do you mean? I'll pray for you. And we have all these terms that are just kind of part of the culture of being in church and, and we know what they mean. Well, Israel had the same thing, Israelis, I guess. Um, but they, they're, these are terms that they all were comfortable with. And one of them would be the Holy One. If you ask them, who is the Holy One? They knew who the Holy One is. It's Yahweh. It is God. So go with me to Psalm and go to Psalm 16, and we'll do a quick tour of this term as well. And we'll be very quick here. In verse 10, here is another passage specifically applied to Jesus Christ about his resurrection. In fact, Peter talked about this passage in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the grave, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Here it's talking of, of, of the future Messiah in some way that he would not stay dead. A lot of mystery at this point built into that passage. Go over to Psalm 89, though. Psalm 89, it talks about Yahweh's care, God's care for this Holy One. But in Isaiah 89, verse 18, 
He says, for our shield belongs to, here it's to Yahweh, and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh is the Holy One. The Holy One is Yahweh. In the same sense, then, you see back in Psalm 16 that that would cause them to think, well, how does that work? If the Holy One is Yahweh, what does it mean that the Holy One will not suffer decay? Listen to what, just listen here to Isaiah 1. Well, actually, I want you to turn to Isaiah 1, but Holy One is one of the most favorite divine titles that Isaiah uses. So you see it throughout this book. So at the very beginning, he lays the groundwork of how bad this prophecy is going to be. He says, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned Yahweh and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Again, it's, uh, it's the, the favorite title of Isaiah. It pictures the Lord as the sovereign king who rules over his covenant people, and he exercises his moral authority over them. So when it t- invokes the t- term, the Holy One of Israel, it's that one who stands above them and is totally other than them. In Isaiah 60, verse 9, go all the way back to the near the end of this important Book, verse 9, surely the coastlands will wait for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God, for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Here he's actually talking about uh, a, a time when God will finally bring Israel back when he will draw them back to himself and that even the nation shall bless the nation the nation of Israel. He will restore them. And it's here and in verse 14 as well, if you'll look over at verse 14, and the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. All those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. Talking about Israel, that they'll come and bow They will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is that coming hope that every Israelite was to hold on to. It's what every prophet speaks of in the Old Testament is that you are in trouble because of your sin. You are in deep trouble. You're going to be led away. You're going to suffer under my hand because I am faithful to my promise. You have not kept my covenant. And I told you from the beginning, if you break my covenant, this is what will happen. But I am your God. I am a God of covenant-keeping love, and I will bring you back in due time. Every Israelite, beloved, you got to understand that. Every Israelite got raised from their mother's knee into adulthood with that promise. No different than all of you ought to be raising your children with the promise that Christ is going to come again and make all things new. And it doesn't look like it. And all we can see is our struggles and our hardships. But we need to remember that in due time, God will bring about a restoration of all things. In the same way, every Israelite knew this. Then back, just keep this in mind, in uh, Acts 14, he not didn't just say the Holy One, but he was the Righteous One. 
So go back to Isaiah 24. Again, I told you we spent a lot of time in Isaiah today. So not only does he invoke the Holy One, but he also invokes the term the Righteous One. So in 24, verse 16, from the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the Righteous One. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, the treacherous deal very treacherously. Here Isaiah is talking about, you know what, you, you love to sing your praises to the righteous one, speaking of Yahweh, the true God. But in fact, all you do is cheat and lie and you deal treacherously, which is why they're under judgment. But it is to Israel, Israel would call the righteous one and they would be referencing Yahweh, the true God. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verse 11. And if you're not sure what I mean by Yahweh, I'm, I'm guilty of assuming here. If you're not sure what, in the Old Testament, the name of God is Yahweh. He reveals himself as that, Yahweh. And so in your, in your Bibles, you'll see in the Old Testament that the word Lord will be sometimes in all capitals. That's the actual name of Jesus. It's not Lord. It's actually Yahweh. And, and I want us to understand that. And so it's, it differentiates him from Baal or Asherah or Molech or any other god. This is his name, not just his title, but his name, and so you, you need to understand that. So this is talking of, of um, Isaiah talking about them invoking the name righteous or the, the title righteous one, and it refers to Yahweh, the true God. So Isaiah 53, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one who is my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. So going right back to that very critical passage about the coming one who would make all things right, not only is he the servant, but here is the righteous one, the one who will bring justification, who will make us right before our holy God. Now in Acts 3, verse 14, Peter just simply, and go ahead and turn there, Peter just simply invokes both those names together. He puts the holy and righteous one together. This is simply driving home for these Israelites who are hearing this, the damning truth of what they've done to this Jesus. They're all a a Twitter and excited because some guy got healed and they want to know more about that. And he turns around, he's like, here's the problem, guys. I didn't do this myself. I did it in the name of Jesus. Everyone hears the name of Jesus and they're like, oh, here we go again. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the servant. Do you see kind of what he's doing there yet? He's invoking these names that that speak of Yahweh and his promised one. And he's invoking them and he says, that's how I did this. That's why this man is leaping and rejoicing and fully healed. The promised one from old, the one who would save the nation and bring it eternal life, the one who would bring the restoration of all things, the one who is holy, 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 the one who is the standard for all that could ever be called righteous, 
That one you rejected. That one you disowned for a murderer. This one that they all grew up singing songs about. This one that their mothers would tell them when they would wake up from a nightmare. And she would pet their head, just like your mother perhaps did for you, and would just comfort them and speak to them. And, he, and, and the mother would remind them of the one who would come. Oh, don't you worry, sweetheart. The servant of God shall come, and he will make all things right. Don't worry. The holy one, the righteous one, he will bear our iniquities. He will bring us from afar, and he will bring us back and make all things right. You don't be afraid, little one. Just trust. Trust in the Holy One. Can't you see? Don't you do that with your own children when they wake up and they're scared and you pick them up and you're holding them? I hope you do. I hope you pet them and place your hand upon their head and pray gently into their ear and show them that their faith must be resting in Christ. How you bring comfort to them in the name of Jesus and you remind them that this world is fallen and broken, but God is coming, that he has son will make all things right. That's all they're doing. And that's all he's doing now is he's dragging up all of these things that these people had heard and dreamed about and worshiped and sang songs and wrote poems. And he said, you murdered him. Then in verse 14 of chapter 3, he uses, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 15, he uses another term. You put to death the prince of life. Notice the word play in, in verse 15. That's pretty simple. You put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. From the dead. They put to death the murdered one. I mean, they put to death and murdered the one who not only has life, but is life. But God raised him from the dead. That's the simple thing. Here is the prince of life. You killed him, but God raised him. John 14, verse 6, what did Jesus say to these people? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the essence of his being. Not that I just possess life or I can give life, but I am life. I am the prince of life. I know some of your translations says something different. I'll get to that. It's actually a very beautiful image if you let your mind consider for a moment. Because in John chapter 10, turn there, just turn back it's a few pages. John chapter 10, we have a very beautiful picture of, of Jesus. And he says, I am the good shepherd, the great shepherd. It's a very powerful image, but also one of that's very tranquil and, and encouraging to you, that he is the great shepherd. The wolves are always going to be around the sheep. They're always going to be looking for a way to snag a sheep and kill it. But there is the one, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, who lays his life down in the place of the sheep 
So the wolf comes to destroy, and instead of running back and abandoning the sheep, this shepherd, the true shepherd, steps forward and lays his life down in their place. Who are the sheep? Well, Israel was, and we are. But notice verse 18, 17 and 18 of John 10. For this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I am the Prince of Life. You murdered me, but you know why you murdered me? Because I laid it down. I laid my body and I gave it to you so that I might redeem you. The picture is of the shepherd who dies in our place. The one who possesses life that no one can snatch from him because he is life. So the prince of life lays down his life that no one could take from him. And then he takes back his life, conquering death. And so we see that though they killed Jesus, that the Father then raised him from the dead. And to that, he says in Acts, the apostles were witnesses. That's what they're testifying is, this Jesus whom you killed, God raised from the dead. Now, if you have an ESV or the New International Version, you'll see that instead of prince, they use the word author. If you have the Net Bible, New English Translation, they use the word originator. I just want to make a quick comment on that. Why? Because it seems different, right? The prince of life or the author of life, which one is it? Well, it's actually a little shade of all of that. This is one of those issues where the English does not translate well the Greek, and so it, you have to deal with shades of meaning. They all have an overlap, so the term can emphasize someone in the preeminent position, like a prince or ruler, the one who leads, in other words. Or it can talk about the, origina- the one who originates or begins something the founder of something. So it's used in Hebrews as that he is the author or founder of our faith. That's who Jesus, same term. But there's also this idea of founding or establishing. Now, I, I like the word author here rather than prince, not because it's better or right, but it captures our culture and, and how we would understand these words in our culture. Picture the wordplay as describing the one who comes to be the hero. He's the prince, the one who leads, the author of life. He is the one that's going to lead the way in victory. But what's the battle? Where's that battle lie? Well, it's not actually in our hearts. It's actually in the true enemies that we all have, sin, Satan, and death, right? The one, the three things you and I have no power over, he comes and leads the victory. But how? How does he do it? Well, the way he does it is by possessing true life. And so he leads us and he fights for us and he accomplishes the victory because it's bound up within his own essence, You cannot take the life of one who is life. 
Does that make sense? You, you, you can't. You can't take truth from the one who is the essence of truth, from which truth comes out. He is the author or the prince of life. And this is another image that is very powerful in the scripture. Then he invokes the word Christ in verse 18 and verse 20. So back in Acts 3, in verse 18, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that, and I would underline his Christ, should suffer. He is thus fulfilled. It's not just some Christ, it's God's Christ. Notice again in verse 20, so that he may send Jesus, but it's not Jesus Christ, is it? So that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Again, I would circle the word the or the, however you pronounce it. These modifiers, his and and the definite article, the, all of this flows out of an Old Testament term where we get the word Christ. Christ is just simply a transliteration of a Greek word, which is what the New Testament's written in. So the New Testament was written primarily in Greek, and it's Christos. We get Christ. Christos comes from an Old Testament word that we get Messiah from, and all it means is the anointed one. That's all it means, but it takes on a very powerful meaning. So over time, the one who would be anointed with oil would mark them out in Israel as the one in which God had chosen for some special task. So the anointed one of Israel would be the king of Israel. And so you're not supposed to mess with them. And, and then some prophets were anointed and other people would be anointed, literally pouring oil over their head and would drip down. But it would, the imagery was one of the power and the choice of God is upon this person to accomplish a specific task. But as it developed, the Old Testament begins to speak of the one who would be called the anointed one. And so in Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so by that time, they began to speak of this one who was the Messiah, the anointed one. So Daniel, the prophet, speaks of the coming Messiah or the coming anointed one in his powerful images that he invokes in his book. And that is what the Gospels all do. So turn back just to John chapter 20, right near the end in a well-known passage. Why was the Gospel of John written? Why did we, why do we have it? Why are the stories by John chosen? In other words, he could have chosen many things to write about for his gospel, but he chose these. Why? Well, Jesus says some specific things here in John 20, verse 31. But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the anointed one. In fact, the book of John is very Jewish, and all the way through, all of the stories and images that he does are designed to take a Jew who knows his Old Testament 
and, invo- and, and, and invoke into his mind this, this idea of the anointed one, the Christ, that he is the Christ, the son of God, so that believing you may have life in his name. Now, you need to grasp this very clearly, though. The prophet Malachi ends the, pro- the message from God with a promise that the Messiah, the anointed one, will come. From there, 400 years of silence takes place, and Jesus comes finally into this picture. He is teaching and healing and raising dead and performing miracles and casting out demons, and people are starting to say, is he the Christ? Is he the one, the anointed one? He then turns around and says, I am, and they kill him. One more, and we'll draw it all together. In verse 22, he is called the prophet. Isaiah, or Acts 3, 22, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. This is a, a passage, every, and, and if you grew up in the church, you learned John 3.16. If you were a Jewish child, you grew up and you learned Deuteronomy 18. You just learned it. So at the very end of this message where he confronts Israel, Peter calls upon this final term, and he's going to drive home his point. He's going to drive home that Israel is guilty. It's all built off of this call to repent and to return to Yahweh in verse 10, something we'll talk about next week. Realize that they think that they never left him. My fear for some of you in this room right now is that's your opinion of yourself, that you've never left Christ, and yet there is no evidence within your heart that he is with you, that you are able to declare him rightly as your Lord and Savior because there is no interest in him. This is something parents should always be exhorting, not in that negative legalistic way, but exhorting their children to believe and to continue to believe, not just, well, I've asked him in my heart, and now I guess I'm good. Every Israelite in that in that temple ground that Peter is looking at, if he was to say, do you believe in Yahweh? They would say, of course we do. Are you God's chosen? Of course we are. Are you safe in Yahweh? Of course we're safe in Yahweh. We believe in Yahweh. And they can tell you chapter and verse, the Old Testament, all about what they believe. And yet they're not. They think they've never left him. This is what Grayson's been teaching us, right? We're okay, we're okay. And then God prophet comes and rips them to shreds. And what do they do? Do they rend their clothes and weep and say, I am the guilty one? I'm guilty. No. Usually they just beat up the prophet. How dare you? Then God sends another prophet and another prophet and another prophet until finally no more prophets. Some of you sit here week in and week out and you hear the gospel, you hear the gospel, you hear the gospel, you hear it, you hear it and you hear it and then you yawn and you stretch and you walk away and you wipe your mouth and you say, I have not left him. But have you? Were you ever with him? 
You see, your love. Are you going through the motions? Are you going through the externals? But there is no heart that has been changed by God himself that manifests a love of Christ. The harsh reality is that this nation is under the judgment of God. It has been for centuries, and they're still working hard to rationalize it. That is the power of sin in our hearts. And so he quotes Moses. It's a very famous passage. They all loved Abraham and they all loved Moses. And so he quotes this passage because Moses was more than a prophet. He was also the leader of Israel. And so in Deuteronomy, way back at the beginning in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, which is all Deuteronomy means, the second law, in verse 18 In verse 15, it says, chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Verse 18 and 19, I will raise up, now it's the Lord speaking, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So here, he's saying this one who is a prophet, like Moses, God will raise up and he will speak my words. You don't listen to him, I will deal with that person. That's what he's saying to the people there. You've heard the prophet speak. He sent you the prophet. And you did not listen. Those of you in the Hebrew study, you're going to come to chapter 3 here shortly. And in chapter 3, the writer warns the people, so I warn you too, don't be like Israel. Israel was rescued out of enslavement in, in Egypt. They were taken faithfully across the wilderness, they were brought to the very edge of the land of promise. God said, go in and take it. I will be with you. I will go before you. I will fight your battles for you. And they all got afraid except for a few. The vast majority of them said, we will not go. There's scary people in there. And they all died in the wilderness because they were men and women of unbelief, the writer says. Then he says to you and I, don't be like them. And he's afraid they are. Are you that way? Are you a man or a woman who is claiming Christ, but every time it comes to actually walking in that faith, you shy away? It's interesting, in John 4, verse 25, there's this woman who's a Samaritan woman, a, a, a woman of very loose morals and questionable character. She would be hated by all Jews because she's a Samaritan. But she knew about the Messiah too, the one who's called the Christ. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming and that the one, when the one comes, he will declare all things to us. And so Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am that one. Who is that one who will come and speak to her all these things? It's the prophet of promised in Deuteronomy. The expectation of God was by God, the expectation by God, the God of Israel was to listen and obey 
what this one who is the prophet would say. And verse 23, back in Acts 3, verse 23 gives the consequence. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And they killed him. So here we are. Let's tie it all together. There's so much more to say, but enough for now. You have a man healed. The people are amazed, excited. A sermon's preached. It's blunt. It's brutal. It's a sermon that will get the apostles actually into trouble because what he says here is not appreciated, but it was needed, right? They had to hear it. So let's do a quick review to grasp actually how clever this sermon is. It really is a clever sermon. Peter says that the God of their father sent you, Israel, the promised Savior, the servant, and you delivered him up to be killed. God sent the one who was holy and righteous to you, and you chose a murderer instead. God sends you the one who is the author of life, and you kill him. God sends you the Messiah, the Christ, so that you might find all that is wrong in the world finally made right, but you turn away. God sends you the perfect prophet so that you might listen and finally live and you reject him and therefore you place yourself in the certainty of eternal damnation. Now let me ask you. Look at verse 26 one last time. For you, first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. There he's speaking to Israel. But how do you view Jesus, each one of you? How do you view him? I I wonder some of you. I I do, and I mean that not with a harshness, but as a pastor, I, I wonder, how do you view Jesus? Is he the rule maker? Is he the one who's gonna deny you all the fun and joy that you're hoping to have? Is he the judge? Or do you see him as your life? The wrath of God, the judgment comes because of our sin. That's why it comes. It falls upon us if we do one thing and only one thing. Listen to me. There's only one way that you will suffer the wrath of God. You reject Jesus. It's that simple. God offers you and I life. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us hope. He offers you restoration. He offers you an existence in eternity where sin, injustice, disease, and wrong simply have no place. He calls you to turn from whatever you are looking at right now for your hope and turn it instead to be upon Jesus. And in doing so, he then promised that he will bless you in ways that you can't even fathom. What do you do, beloved, with Jesus? Peter confronts these people. He hits them between the eye in every possible way. He invokes all of these titles that they all knew, and they all wax eloquently about, oh, the prophet, oh, the servant, oh, the Messiah, and on and on they do. And he's like, guys, you killed him. God raised him from the dead, but you killed him. And what he is calling them to do is repent and turn to him. I am telling you, 
You have grown up, some of you, hearing this time and time and time again. Will you not repent? Will you not turn to him and believe? Let's pray. Father, turn our hearts. Turn our hearts back to you. I pray that each one of us in Christ, anyone who is resting in the finished work of Jesus, that even now we would reaffirm again that he is the true servant, the the Holy One, the Righteous One of Israel, the Prince or Author of Life, the Prophet who speaks truth. We would not be shy about these things, but that we would consider how we speak them and model them before those around us. Father, I pray for those who are flirting with how far they can go in sin and yet still remain in Jesus Christ, that they would be filled with a holy dread right now. that they would run back to Christ alone, that we would be filled with a burden to share this hope to those around us, that we would put away the, the folly and the fear, and that we'd be men and women of the gospel. I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you for how you took us when we were far off from you and you brought us near through the blood of Jesus Christ. So send us home now as we prepare to go and rest with family and friends, that we would hope in you and speak of you. I ask this all in your son's name. Amen.